Well, let's turn to Haggai chapter 2. We will read verses 1 through 9. Now hear God's word. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Let's ask God's kindness as we come to his word this morning. Father, we thank you for the great privilege again that it is to be called your children. Such we are. Father, one thing that that means, one of the things that that means is as you have given us your spirit, you have given us the eyes and the ears and the hearts to see and understand your word, words that would be gibberish to us apart from your spirit, not that we could not understand them, but that we would not trust them and believe them apart from your spirit. And so, Father, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would teach us and train our hearts to trust you and to see you and to be glorified or to, to see you glorified in our hearts and in our lives and in our community. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that you would bless us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here this morning be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, since, uh, since Steve is uh, gone this week in Ohio preaching at a conference, um, it is my great pleasure to bring the word to you twice more before we start packing up and, and heading east and so what I thought that I would do these two weeks is to walk with you, walk through with you two of my absolute favorite images from the Old Testament, two images that are significantly encouraging to me and I pray are going to be encouraging to you, images that are faith-building and I, and I think really, really helpful in understanding and explaining and, and giving context to the various experiences and trials that we are called to walk through in this life. Haggai offers the first image, which we are going to consider this morning, and then next week, Lord willing, we will look at Exodus 14, where God has the Israelites wait for him at the edge of the Red Sea. And what ties these two images together, at least in my mind, is the exhaustive sovereignty of God. As Christians who take seriously Paul's exhortation to preach the whole counsel of God's word, to preach in season and out of season, to let the whole of God's word define our understanding of reality in general and then also of our own lives in particular, we are committed to what that word clearly teaches on every page, that God is God and that I am not God, that God alone reigns over all things, that there is there is not one hair that can fall from our heads that was not foreordained from before time began, that, that every star in the galaxy is named and known and in its place, that every bird and every flower is intimately provided for every day by the kind and loving hand of our Father. Which means there is not one event that can happen in your life that cannot be described as anything other than a gift to you from your Father. 
who cares for you, who loves you. There is not one single moment of your existence which, which falls outside of the scope of his attention and his care. There is not one hour of one day when his back is turned toward you or where his mind is drifting and, and is elsewhere and his attention is, is distracted where, or his eyes are elsewhere than on your condition right at this moment. Your every word has been written down beforehand. Your every step is governed by his kindness and his love. Your every anxious thought or fearful emotion is known to him. And your every prayer falls on ears that are eager to hear your voice. For the Lord, he alone is God. He alone sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Isaiah 40, 22 and 23. As our text here in Haggai 2 repeatedly tells us, this is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the captain of the angelic troops. He is the Almighty One, the One who has ultimate power to conquer and to rule, and none can stay His hand. He shakes the nations. He accomplishes his good purpose in this world. By his zeal, he brings about his own will and there, are noth- there is nothing that can hinder him. Nothing can stand in his way. There are no obstacles to him accomplishing his good purpose. All of which means we are not in control. And, and oh, what a blessed thought that is, isn't it? We are not the one who, ones who pull the levers. Right? We don't have to worry about holding our cells together, keeping our eyelids moving to keep our eyes moist. Our Father does that for us. Keeping the planets in orbit, which keeps our world tilted and, and spinning at a certain angle and in a certain motion and, and gives us the seasons. We, the world is held together, we are held together, I am held together simply by the power of His Word. And not only is my physical life in in His hands, my spiritual life is in His hands as well, which means that if I belong to Him, if the just and righteous wrath of God concerning my sins was poured out completely on the shoulders of Christ on the cross, if I have been made a new creation by the powerful working of regeneration of the Holy Spirit, united with Christ, given living faith, if that is true of me, then nothing, I repeat, nothing can separate me from the sovereign and all-powerful love of my Father. But given our, our fleshly propensity to doubt, given our strong desire to see the, see the plan, have the plan completely figured out before we take that first step, to have some sort of control over our situation, when we feel our world being shaken, when it it feels like it's being picked up and and shaken and everything feels unstable or unsettled, like like everything we thought was secure is being unraveled before us, when we are suddenly picked up out of that place that we have called home for nearly four decades and tossed into that great unknown, when we walk through seasons like this, it it is tempting in the flesh, to think that God is either asleep at the wheel or his attention got diverted by something happening elsewhere or that he simply no longer cares for me like he used to. And it is tempting to think this because all of the feels are so strong. We feel things so deeply. We have been trained by our culture to give the final word to our feelings, to trust our feelings implicitly, to have a, uh, to have a guilty until proven innocent attitude towards situations based on the fact that our feelings are so strongly telling us what to believe about those situations. And when we give in to those feelings, very often what they tell us to believe is in direct contradiction to what we know about reality based on the word of God. You can't trust God, our feelings say. God doesn't love you, our feelings say. God obviously doesn't work all things together for your good, because if he did, then why in the world would you be shaken, our feelings say. This, of course, is why we must continuously be governed by the word of God. We must submit ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, daily, hourly, minute by minute, to the supreme authority of Jesus Christ as revealed to us through his word. 
letting His Word be our standard for judging what is good in this world and the goodness of what God is doing in each of our lives. What He is doing as He, as he shakes us and as He shakes the nations around us. And when we turn to God's Word, we find assurance, right? We, we find that hope, that bedrock confidence that the Lord of hosts is who He says He is and will do that which He says He will do. No questions, no doubts, no, no ifs, ands, or buts. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And His purposes are good. Even if we can't see those purposes, even if we can't see those plans and, and, and see, the, see all of the, the, you know, we're going from point A to point B and, and we want to see that road, right? We want to see where that path lies. We know what point B is, but we don't know how we're going to get there. We want to see it. But even when we can't see it, even if we don't understand how that's going to happen, we know and, and can trust him because we know his character. And we know his character is good. We know his track record of faithfulness, not just in, in history and in the word, but even in our own lives. Whenever has God failed you? We have witnesses to the long years of the right hand of the Most High, as Psalm 77 says. And so we can believe what he says and live in the peace that he gives us, even as our worlds are being turned upside down and our lives are shaken. For he is good, and he is a good father. And every moment of our lives is defined by his love for us. This is the, this is the fundamental truth that rests in the background of the encouragement that the Lord is giving to his people through the prophet Haggai. But, but before we look more closely at those verses that Stan just read for us in chapter 2, I want to do a, a quick flyover of the whole of this short prophecy. It's only, it's only two chapters so that we can get the lay of the land and, and know where we are before we dive in a little more deeply in, in chapter 2. So Haggai, the, the year is 520 B.C. The, the exiles, remember the, the kings of Judah fell well, the kings of Israel fell too. They were taken into exile by Assyria. And then 100 years or so later, the, the, the Jews in, in the southern province of Judah were taken into exile in Babylon. They were there for 70 years. And then Cyrus proclaimed that they could come back and they have returned. And that was in about 538 BC when they were released. Here now, it's about 20, a little less than 20 years later about 520 B.C., and the whole of this prophecy takes place in just a matter of a few months from the first day of the sixth month to the 24th day of the ninth month. Joshua the, is the high priest. He's the one in Zechariah 3 who, who, is, who comes before the Lord dressed in filthy garments, and, and the Lord cleanses him and gives him new garments. That's That Joshua is, is the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, is, who is a descendant of David, he is the governor of the province, the governor of Jerusalem currently. And, and when we read this prophecy, we recognize right off the bat that things are not going well for the Jews. Things are not going well for Judah as they are there in their own land. When Cyrus released the Jews from exile and he sent them with this decree, the, uh, Cyrus says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Right? Sends them back from Babylon, out of exile, back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem to build the temple, to build a house for the Lord. And as we know from the book of Ezra, the exiles start off on the right foot and get to work building the temple there in Jerusalem within a year or two of their arrival in the land. But as Ezra also tells us, they were interrupted both by adversaries and by uh, the various rulers who were wanting to stop them in their work. Ezra 4, 4 through 5 says that the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This turns out to be a period of about 18 years. But the first 11 verses of Haggai 1 shed some light on, on, on perhaps what is the deeper reason why they had abandoned their duty to rebuild the temple. The Lord, if, if you have it open, look, look with me. The Lord speaks through the prophet Haggai in chapter 1, verse 4, saying, 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? In other words, more than being intimidated by their enemies, though there was that, the returned exiles had grown comfortable in their own homes, deciding to work on their own dwellings first, putting up paneling, wainscoting, and, 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 and decking their homes out with, with fancy, fancy accoutrements and, and, and remodeling and, and not just putting up four walls for them to live in, but focusing all of their attention and their resources on their own homes. And then perhaps down the road, eventually we would get around to building the house of the Lord. As it says in verse 2, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's what's going on in their hearts. So more than simply being bullied into inactivity, the people had refused to obey the command to build a house for the Lord because they had turned to serve their own ends first. They decided that their own houses, their own plans, their own desires were more important than obedience, more important than what the Lord of heaven and earth had given them to do. In order to to wake them up out of their stupor and indolence and rebellion, God had sent a famine in the land. Verses 5 through 11, he is basically asking the people, didn't you ever wonder why your harvests were so poor? Why your land was dry and your food scarce? Didn't you stop to think that there might be a reason behind it? You looked for much, the Lord says in verse 9, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. This is Haggai's prophetic denouncement and exhortation to the exiles there in Jerusalem. And and it's basically a a stern wake-up call, right? Stop doing what you're not supposed to be doing and start doing what God has called you to do. Get back to work. And remarkably, one of the few times that we have recorded in the Old Testament, the, the people repent and they obey. Verses 12 through 15 tell of how the Lord stirred up the spirit of the leaders and all the people and they got back to working on the house of the Lord. Ezra 6 tells us that they worked hard and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. And eventually they finished the temple some four years later. But then in Haggai 2, which is, which is only a handful of weeks since that first prophecy was given, after they get back to business, in, in, in verses 1 through 9, which we read earlier, the Lord is leading them to realize that this second temple is, a, is really a pathetic shadow of the glorious and wondrous temple that Solomon had built centuries before. And yet, here's that, that conjunction, right? Yet, but, those words in Scripture always are remarkable for what they lead to. And yet, somehow, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory. The glory of this temple that they're going to be building now and that they're setting their hands to now will be glorious, far more glorious than even the glorious splendor of Solomon's temple, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The glory that is coming will be more grand, more splendid than anything Solomon could have dreamt of. We'll come back to this in a minute. In verses 10 through 19 of chapter 2, the the Lord highlights how unfaithful his people have been, again, reminding them of why there was a drought, why their crops had failed and their orchards gave no fruit. They, They are a defiled people because they have sinned greatly. He explains that the famine was basically an 18 years long object lesson for them. Disobey, rebel, turn away from the Lord, and you will suffer fruitlessness, literally for them. But turn back to the Lord, obey, and he will bless you. Verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing because of your faithlessness. And yet, but from this day on, I will bless you, the Lord says. From this day forward, from the day that you have turned and began to obey my word once again, from the day that you listened to my prophet, 
I will bless you once again. I will bring fruitfulness and provide what you need to do the work that you've been called to do. In effect, he's, the, the Lord is saying here the same thing that he would tell his disciples later in Matthew 6. Seek the kingdom. Seek his righteousness. Seek the work that God has put before you to build him a dwelling place in the midst of the nations of men, discipling the nations, teaching them, baptizing them. Do that work that I've called you to do. Build me a house and all that you need shall be added unto you. All that you need to do that work shall be added unto you. Everything you need for life and shelter, God will provide in order to sustain you as you embrace the purpose for which you were brought out of exile. For he is the sovereign king over all things and all things are his to give. In the last four verses, of Haggai 2, of of this short prophecy, the Lord directly speaks to Zerubbabel, who's the governor, and again, a descendant of David. His grandfather, you may remember this name, his grandfather was Jeconiah, the king of Judah, who had been carried away into captivity a a century or so before by Nebuchadnezzar. And, And because of Jeconiah's complete and utter faithlessness, because of Jeconiah's rebellion, The Lord judged Jeconiah in Jeremiah 22, where he says this. This is Jeremiah 22. As I live, declares the Lord, through though, sorry, though Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though he were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those who are of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Even if Jeconiah were the signet ring on the right hand of Yahweh, the Lord would cast him off. Even if he held such such an important position and role as being the signet ring on the hand of the king, that ring would be taken off and thrown away and given to the enemies of God's people because of his wickedness, because of his unfaithfulness. He'd be given up into the exile in Babylon because of the things that he had done in rebellion to the word of the Lord, which is exactly what the Lord did. Not only did he prophesy that through Jeremiah, he, he did that. He, he enacted that. Babylon came. Nebuchadnezzar came. The kings of Judah and Israel were the representatives of King Yahweh and were supposed to govern faithfully and, and righteously in his place, just like a, a signet ring would represent the word of the king. They were like signet rings indeed. But Jeconiah did not fulfill that purpose. He did not represent Yahweh well. He represented Jeconiah well. And that was the problem. And so like so many other kings, he was a wicked man serving his own pleasure rather than the will of God. And so he was cast off into exile. That's, that's Jeconiah, right? But here in Haggai, God reverses that curse. Speaking directly to Zerubbabel, who is Jeconiah's grandson, God says this, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What this coming day is, we'll see in a minute, but but notice first the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God that he shows here to the house of David. Remember, he had promised King David back in 2 Samuel 7 that he would never, that David would never lack a son to sit on the throne. And Jeconiah had been deposed and the line had seemed to be broken while in exile. But here, Haggai reminds the people of God's faithfulness to his promises by declaring that the Lord would make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. Just as the grandfather had been cast off like a signet ring, so now the grandson would be put back on. Just as, as God continued to show mercy and grace to his people. But what is this day that the Lord is, is speaking of? In, in verse 21 of chapter 2, the Lord echoes and expands on, on what he was saying earlier in that passage that we read. He says this in, in verse 21, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, and then the rest. The Lord will soon shake the heavens and the earth. 
overthrow kingdoms, destroy their strength and their martial might. And it is on that day when all that happens that the Lord will make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. What's he talking about? What does all this mean? We'll look back up now at chapter 2 of verse 1, verse 1 of chapter 2, and let's work through this a little bit. See the context of what the Lord is saying through Haggai. Verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. So all the people have gathered. All the people are there on the 21st day of the seventh month. And the reason why they're all gathered is because this happens to be the second to last day of their annual Feast of Booths, which was the harvest festival, the Thanksgiving festival, as they came and and after the harvest, they they gave praise to God and dedicated that harvest to the Lord. And it had an eight-day-long festival where they worshipped him and celebrated and ate and drank and, and were merry before the Lord. And on, on the second to last day, on the seventh day, this, this is what the 21st day of the seventh month refers to, they are gathered together with the high priest and the governor and all the remnant together. And, and the, the Lord asks that gathered congregation, he says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? All right, so they're standing next to the the foundation that had been laid 18 years ago of this new temple. They're standing there. All it is is a foundation. There's still some ruin and rubble around it because they had neglected to deal with it. They're standing there looking at this foundation, and the Lord asks, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you now see it? Is, is it not as nothing in your eyes? The Lord is asking, basically, show of hands, who remembers Solomon's temple, Right? Before Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed it with fire. Who remembers its former glory? We know there were a few old-timers there who did remember it, who, who would have been young kids when they were te- taken into exile. In, in Ezra 3, verse 12 says that many of the old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. And the Lord is deliberately drawing this connection in order to point out that compared to Solomon's temple, this doesn't look very promising. Is it not as nothing in your eyes, he says, compared to what Solomon had accomplished, compared to the grandeur and splendor of that building, compared to the beauty that draw the kings and princes from all over the world to come and and bow before God in that temple? Compared to that, this... This pitiful beginning just seems like a joke. That's the, that's the distinction that, that the Lord is making. And, and then he says, and yet, right? Yahweh always, being, always using the weak things to confound the strong. The Lord of hosts is about to do something totally unexpected. Verses 4 and 5, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, work on this temple. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, according to my promises to you as my people. Just as I promised Moses that I would be with you and promised to be with you even after you, were rebel- even after you rebelled and were, were driven into exile, so now I am faithful to keep my promise, says the Lord. I am with you, he says. Be strong, work, set your hand to the job before you. My spirit remains in your midst, he says. Fear not, he says. And you hear what the Lord is saying. Do not be afraid. I am the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, and I, as that sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, am with you. I'm here with you. I'm in your midst. I am the one who keeps his promises. I hold the nations in my hand. They are are mine to move as I will. Despite all of your, your treachery and deceit and idolatry, my spirit remains in your midst for your good, he says. Despite all the enemies in the land who would seek your harm, I am for you. As he says in Jeremiah, I have plans for you, plans for blessing and not for a curse. Therefore, do not fear, trust me, follow after me, says the Lord. For, because, verses 6 through 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
yet once more. And this is, this is the encouragement that he's giving them, right? See if this sounds like encouragement, at least the first part. Because this is why you can trust me, this is why you need not fear, for yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake the nations, all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Pick up on that repetition of Lord of hosts. He's emphasizing his sovereign control, his sovereignty, his, his kingship, his command of all things. And the grammar of verse 6 indicates not a, a single event like just one shaking or, or one earthquake that would happen, but an ongoing, continuous shaking. I am, I will be shaking the heavens and the earth is literally what the Lord is saying. A day is coming soon when God is going to start shaking things up. He is going to turn things upside down. He is going to take all the wealth of the, all the, wealth of the nations, all the, the treasured possessions, all the things that, that, the, that the other nations looked at with, with pleasure and desire. He's going to take all of those treasured possessions, which, which belong to him anyway, he says, right? They're, they're his anyway. And he's going to bring all of that wealth into this temple. And when he does that, when he accomplishes that through the, through the continuous shaking of those nations, when, when that process is finally complete, the latter glory of this temple will far outstrip the glory of the former. In other words, Israel, don't judge by appearances. This pitiful and pathetic slow start to the rebuilding of a temple that pales in comparison to the glory of the temple Solomon had built centuries before This is no indication of what is really going on. Live by faith, in other words, not by sight. So, take heart, Joshua. Take heart, Zerubbabel. Be strong, you remnant of the people. Don't judge by appearances. I am going to do something tremendous with this temple. I'm going to to, to do something that will just blow your minds. Blow out the, the circuits of your expectations. I am going to be shaking the whole world until all the treasured possessions of the nations are brought into this temple and fill it with a glory that Solomon could never have imagined in a million years. Furthermore, this shaking will mean the overthrow of the thrones of kingdoms that, that you so fear, all those nations that are around you that, that war against you, that, that you are afraid of, that try to hinder you from doing my work. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms, the destruction of their strength, and and cast down their strongholds. And when God does this, Zerubbabel will become as a signet ring on the hand of Yahweh. The son of David will take his place as the signet ring of Yahweh, as the representative of Yahweh. And as a result of all of this shaking and overthrow and, and disruption, what seems like disruption, what feels like disruption... Verse 9, in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I will give shalom. I will give wholeness, reconciliation, unity. God's shaking of heaven and earth will result not only in the temple receiving all the wealth of the nations and, and surpassing the former temple in glory, but also Jerusalem will finally be at peace, will finally be made completely whole and will be at rest. There is, there is deep irony here, of course, because Jerusalem, which that word means city of peace, had been anything but peaceful in its long and sordid history of idolatry and rebellion ever since the days of Solomon. And of course, nothing really changed even after the time of Haggai. Jerusalem continued to be at the center of conflict and conquest, even right up to the Roman era, at which time the fullness of the irony was made clear when in 70 AD, far from being a city of peace, far from being an effective light of truth to the nations, far from realizing the fullness of the promise made here, far from being the epicenter of Israel's own redemption and restoration, Jerusalem was conquered. And that temple that these Jews here in Haggai rebuilt was utterly and irrevocably destroyed. As as 
As Paul might put it, what shall we say then? Have the promises of God failed? May it never be. May it never be. So, what is the Lord saying here through the prophet Haggai? What's, what's he pointing at? What's he, what's he saying? What's the import of this prophecy? What's he getting at? The, the, whole, the whole of these two chapters in a nutshell is, is this. The people have neglected to do what they were released from exile to do. The Lord chastises them. They repent and get to work. As they begin the process, the Lord compares this house to the one destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and strangely promises that this new pathetic copy will thoroughly outstrip the glory of the former and be the dwelling place of God's peace. Not only that, but despite all the sin and rebellion that have defined the children of God, the very sin and rebellion that had brought them brought on them famine and drought, God is determined to show mercy and to bless them. So much so that Zerubbabel, the grandson of one of Israel's most wicked kings, will be as the signet ring on Yahweh's right hand. All this will be accomplished through the shaking of the nations of men, with the result that one, the kingdoms are destroyed and overthrown, and two, their treasured possessions flood this temple with greater and greater glory. That's Haggai in a nutshell. So how do we make sense of this? In Haggai's day, the the Jews took this as the encouragement they needed to know that the Lord was with them, and, and rightly so. That the Lord was on their side and would continue in their midst and would bless them beyond their wildest dreams as they faithfully waited for him, putting their trust in his sovereign care. However, as, as we know, as time progressed, their expectation of what this would mean grew in a, in a particular direction such that they started lusting after sociopolitical power, gold, silver, the literal wealth of the nations, They were the smallest of the nations, and yet their ambition and their prideful expectation was that they would be the center of worldwide dominion. The kings of the earth would bow to them. The wealth of the nations would be given to them. The authority over all the kingdoms of men would be given to them. This is what the Pharisees are saying in Jesus' day. This is what they were wanting. This is why Jesus' message of a kingdom not of this world was so repulsive to them. A kingdom that was based on faith and not on direct political power. This is also why Jesus exposes their hearts and when he says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think all the prophecies, all the laws are your e-ticket to temporal under the sun power and glory that would last forever. You think that they are a treasure map which leads to your own political sovereignty and autonomy. You think Jesus is saying that scriptures are a game plan for your own ascendancy. It, And honestly, you read something like Haggai, and you might be tempted to think, well, maybe they have a point. (laughs) I mean, look at what it says. All the nations are going to be overturned, and their wealth is going to be brought into the temple, and the peace of God will be on one city and one city only, the city of Jerusalem. But what does Jesus say in response to all these thoughts? It is these very scriptures that bear witness about me, Jesus says. It is these very scriptures here in Haggai that bear witness about Jesus. We don't need to speculate. We don't need to guess. Jesus himself has given us both the authority and the obligation to see him declared and promised in these pages. And and we've seen too much of the Old Testament now to be surprised, right? The The whole Old Testament is one long testimony of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, the one who would conquer not just not just ethno-political troubles, but conquer sin. Conquer death. Conquer that eternal separation that keeps us from eternal life with the Father. He would conquer the dragon. He would rescue his people from the clutches of sin and death, and he would bring freedom and redemption to the world. Not not just horizontal peace, not just a cessation of hostility, but real peace, real wholeness, reconciliation with God. That's what this is talking about. That is the hope that Haggai is giving us here. Simply put, Haggai is all about Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel, Matthew 2.15. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, Galatians 3.16. Jesus is the true temple of God, John 2.21. Jesus is the true son of David, the the king and and the true signet ring on the right hand of Yahweh, Matthew 28.18. Jesus is our true peace, Ephesians 2.14. 
the temple, Jerusalem, even Zerubbabel, are all neon signs that don't point to themselves. They all point to Jesus. They all point to who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Haggai is all about what the Father is going to do for His people, for His world, through the death and resurrection and ascension of His Son and the sending of His Holy Spirit. In other words, Haggai is not about the restoration of a new physical temple or a new physical kingdom where animal sacrifices continue to be made and human priests continue to serve, where literal gold and wealth, gold and silver coins come flooding in. No, Jesus is the temple whose latter glory far surpasses the glory of stone and precious gems. Jesus is the great high priest who offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice on the altar of the cross. He is the temple, the meeting place of God and man. It is in Christ that we come. It is through the sacrifice of Christ that we come. It is through the peace that is Jesus that we come to the Father. But if Jesus is the temple, if Jesus is the temple, then what what is the wealth that God is shaking loose from the pockets of all the nations? What is the wealth that he is bringing into the temple, into Christ himself? Well, look around you. We are the wealth of the nations. You are the gold and the silver, children owned by God, that the nations are being forced to give up as he shakes the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the dry land. You are the wealth of the nations that God is bringing in to his temple, into Christ. And if Jesus is the true Zerubbabel, this true son of David, what of the overthrowing of the kingdoms? What does Jesus say in John 12? Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, meaning Satan, will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. By his death and resurrection, by conquering sin on the cross and in the empty grave, Jesus took to himself the possession of, of all the nations as the inheritance that had been promised to him by the Father. The kingdoms of the earth had become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Psalm 2, Ask of me, the Father says to the Son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In the death and resurrection of the Son, Jesus asked the Father and the Father gave. And in the ascension, as the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven, he received his inheritance, the inheritance of the nations. As we read earlier in Daniel 7, to him, to Christ, at his ascension, because of the worthiness of his sacrifice and the the power of his resurrection, to him was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. We Brothers and sisters, here are those nations. We are the wealth of the nations that the Lord is bringing into the temple through the work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We are why he is shaking the world. We are why he is shaking the world, overthrowing kingdoms of sin and slavery in order to bring the wealth of the nations, all peoples, nations, and languages to the honor and glory of Jesus. Now we go and preach reconciliation to the nations discipling them and turning their self-centered worlds upside down. Now, in the power of the resurrection, we go and fight back against the principalities and powers of this present darkness. Now, we topple strongholds and arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now, we bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, Ephesians 3.10 whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, because all things were created through him and for him. Speaking of Christ, Colossians 1.16. For Jesus alone is the sovereign Lord and master of all. No other king can claim sovereign authority. No other king, no president, no prime minister, no cabinet member, no member of Congress, no judge, no governor, no principality or power, No one but Christ, and Christ alone reigns as the sovereign Lord over the nations of this this world. All will bow the knee to him, Philippians 2. All will confess that he is Lord. Haggai is all about Jesus. 
This is even more clear when when we consider how the apostles themselves read and understood this prophecy in Haggai. Turn over to Hebrews 12. And look with me at verses 26 through 29. Hebrews 12. If ever there's something in the Old Testament that you don't quite understand, read the New Testament again, and I guarantee you, the apostles and prophets and the Spirit through the inspiration of the New Testament will make that clear. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. A fun little phrase that you can remember. But it's all about Jesus. That's why it's clear. It's all about Jesus. 39 books tell us that he's coming. 27 books tell us that he came and why he came. The author of Hebrews here in in chapter 12 is teaching us that we have not come to a mountain that could be touched, to Mount Sinai back in in Exodus, but rather we have come to the very presence of God, not to a a physical Jerusalem. The, The physicality no longer matters. Not that it's unimportant, but the physicality of the place where you worship, the, the place in Jerusalem proper, that, that, was a, that was a signpost pointing to something different. Remember in John 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and the woman says, Your, you, you guys, you Jews, say that you have to worship in Jerusalem, and, and our, our people, the Samaritans, we say somewhere else, and, and Jesus says the time is coming where you will worship in spirit and in truth. The physical locality no longer matters. We don't come to a physical Jerusalem, but to that heavenly Jerusalem, to the throne room of Jesus himself, who is our mediator and king. And what will he do as king? What is he doing even now, starting when he ascended into heaven? Verse 26, at that time, speaking of, of Mount Sinai, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That first shaking of the earth is referring back to verses 18 through 21, which is talking about Mount Sinai when Moses and the people came out of Egypt and where the, Lord of, the voice of the Lord from, came from the cloud on the mountain and shook the earth and terrified the Israelites. But now, quoting from Haggai 2, now God is not only shaking the earth, but he's shaking the heavens as well. Why? For what purpose? He tells us, so that those things which can be shaken, the things that can be removed, in other words, the things that are not eternal, those things might be taken away in order so that the things that cannot be shaken, the things that are eternal, might remain. And well, what is it that cannot be shaken? It is nothing less than the kingdom of Jesus that he is building where with reverence and awe we offer to God acceptable worship in living sacrifices of praise. But what's happening as he shakes the heavens and the earth? Hebrews tells us how to interpret Haggai. By shaking the heavens and the earth, the Lord is building a kingdom here and now that cannot be destroyed. With that which cannot be shaken, he is building it with the wealth of the nations brick by living Brick. Peter says in verse 2, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The point is this. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true temple. And in him, we become the household of God, the place where he has promised to dwell. And because Jesus is our peace, because he is our shalom, our wholeness, our perfection, our union and reconciliation with the Father, we now live in the everlasting and unshakable love of God. You, Christian, are the unshakable things in this world. As this world is shaken, as as God shakes the nations and, and through that shaking empties the pockets of those nations, then their wealth comes into the temple, into Christ. You are that wealth coming into the nations 
You are the things that cannot be shaken. You are the things that will remain because of God's love on you through Christ. So bringing it back to where we began, our our triune God alone is sovereign over all things, right? This world is His. It belongs to Him. We were both created by Him and bought with a price. And so are doubly purposed for His glory. We were created for His glory and we were reborn in Christ for His glory. Our lives are not our own. They are not for our own pleasure, not for our own convenience, not for our own plans and dreams. We are here to accomplish the work that God has left us to do, to disciple the nations, to build Him a house out of the wealth of those nations, to take those souls that have been shaken out of their self-centered complacency as we were and fit them into that growing eternal structure that is the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the church and people of God, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so when you feel like your world is being shaken, as as we've all felt, every one of us here has felt that, when we feel like our lives are being upended and all our plans are being radically transformed, we can trust that not only are we being shaken by the hand of a Father who loves us and cares for us and knows exactly what He is doing, but even more importantly than that, we can trust that He is shaking both us and this world for the ultimate and supremely good purpose of building His eternal, unshakable kingdom one rescued soul at a time. As we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The the latter glory of that house will far outstrip the former glory. He is shaking us gently but firmly in order to shake not, not us out of his hands, but to shake from our hands those things which are of no eternal value. Like the Jews in Haggai's time, it is easy for us to be distracted by our own pursuits, our own cares, our own priorities. It is far too easy for us to keep our eyes on those things which can be seen, the things that are transient, rather than the things that are unseen and eternal, seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he lovingly shakes us out of our complacency, out of our nearsightedness, because this is exactly the task that he has given us to do. Cyrus had sent the Jews back out of exile in Babylon, back to build a house for the Lord. Jesus has sent us back out of our exile of the grave to build a kingdom for the Lord, a house for the Lord, a house for his name here in this world now. And just as the Lord had promised the Jews, so he has promised us and given us even greater assurances because now we have the testimony of the Son of God to base all of these promises on. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant I made with you in the blood of my Son. When you came out of the grave, my spirit is in you and with you and in your midst. Fear not. Rather, be strong and courageous and work. For in this place, in the person and work of my Son, I have given you my perfect and everlasting peace. When you feel the world shaking, when you feel your lives being shaken again and again, know what it is that the Father is doing. He is preparing you for a glory beyond human reckoning, where you are presented as the spotless bride of Christ, adorned with the wealth of the nations and given in everlasting and unshakable union to King Jesus. That is what the shaking of the nations is accomplishing. The sovereign Lord is stripping from us all that would distract us from pursuing Him, loving Him, running after obedience and holiness. And in taking those things away, in removing the temporary and transient things of this world that we, that we grip onto so, so easily, in taking those things away and shaking those things free from our grasp and removing those temporary things. He is establishing us in his everlasting and eternal peace, filling us with an unshakable joy, giving us stronger and stronger assurances of his unfailing love. Can you say amen to that this morning? Father, we thank you for the goodness of your purposes in this world. We thank you that you Far from simply hating the world, you love the world so much that you, you would not leave it in its own death. You would not leave it in its own grave. You would not leave it to be destroyed as just and as righteous as that would have been. 
But your mercy was more. Your mercy is greater. Your mercy is such that you loved a people so much. You loved the nations so much that you sent your only son to die in our place, to take the condemnation that we deserved, to die the death that was ours to die, to take the curse upon his own head and pay the price that we ought to have paid, thus setting us free, liberating us from the tyranny of sin and death, giving us new hearts and minds and lives that love you, that respond in gratitude to what you have done, that are pleased to live for you. Father, we have sin remaining. There are things in our our minds and in our lives that we cling a little too closely to, but we can trust that in your goodness and in your kindness, you will shake those things free from us that we might devote ourselves to you and follow after your call to be faithful, to seek the kingdom, to seek your righteousness and trust that all that we need to do that will be given to us. Father, keep us from anxiety as we are shaken, as this world is shaken. Keep us focused on you that we, in our identity in Christ, we in our future glory that you are preparing for us, we cannot be shaken, though the things around us are. And that through that shaking, you are building for yourself a, a, a glorious people. But I'm always reminded of, of that image in, in Revelation 7, where John hear, hears the number with his ears, hears the number of the saved, that it's 144,000. And then he turns and he sees the number of the saved with his own eyes, and it is a number, a host, beyond counting, beyond reckoning, a host from every tribe, people, tongue, and language bowing before you, serving you, rejoicing in you, populating the new earth for eternity in praise and in wonder and in grace. Father, that is our hope. That is what you are accomplishing. That is what you are doing. Give us faith to see it. Give us faith to trust it. Give us faith to walk in that story, in that great promise that through us you are bringing reconciliation. Through Christ you are bringing reconciliation to the world. So Father, Bless us, be with us, go before us, we pray, as we look to Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. In response, let's stand and let's sing on page five, Christ is made the sure foundation. and 
People said, Amen. Amen. If you ever are in doubt of God's unfailing loving kindness to you, just look at this table. This is where he puts on display his love. This is where he puts on display his unshakable love for you. In that, his own son, he was pleased to crush for our iniquities. In that, the son was pleased to sacrifice himself for our iniquities. In that, our triune God, in, this, in what this story represents, was pleased to redeem for himself a people from every tribe, people, tongue, and language. And that he is accomplishing that purpose even now as we faithfully obey him, faithfully participate in what he is calling us to do, faithfully proclaim his word, faithfully live out.